0: I'm George Mason. Thank you for joining us for Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. My guest today is the Reverend Michael Waters, and he'll be talking with us about race and religion in Dallas and in America at large. Welcome to Good God. Conversations that matter about faith and public life. About the good, that is the common good, and about God, that is how our faith interacts with our life in the world. I'm joined today by the Reverend Michael Waters, uh, a good friend and colleague here in Dallas. Michael is the pastor of the Joy Tabernacle African Methodist Episcopal Church, as well as a second church that he's now pastor of. I don't know how you do that. It's hard enough for me to be the pastor of one church, Michael, but also now uh, doing the work of trying to unite two churches in one vision, uh, the other being the uh, historic 100-year-old Agape Temple AME Church. Uh, Michael is also the co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas, multi-faith organization that uh, is looking to bring people together around the public uh, good in Dallas and uh, promote social justice. And so thank you for being here, Michael. It's an honor to have you on our program today. It's
1: an honor to share with you. And I want to also thank you for the tremendous work that you do not only within Dallas, but across the nation. It's an honor to call you friend and to serve as a co-laborer with you in acts of peace and justice.
0: Wonderful, well, Michael uh, is a real prophetic minister uh, of the gospel of of Christ in our community and throughout the country. And uh, Michael has written a book called Stakes is High. Uh, The subtitle is Race, Faith, and Hope for America. And it seems that uh, here in Dallas at least every time Uh, questions of race or social justice are involved, Michael, you are always ready to be there to show up, to speak up, and to help uh, lead for the cause of justice and not just for justice to be done but for peace to be made through justice. Uh, Stakes is High uh, is a compilation of a number of your writings that you brought together uh, over the past couple of years and it comes, interestingly, Uh, from the title of a song, a hip-hop song by De La Soul, uh, in which uh, he talks about uh, the importance of uh, the black experience uh, in America today. And I'll just uh, quote a couple of lines from it, if I may. Uh, He says, let me tell you what it's all about, a skin not considered equal a meteor has more right than my people. Neighborhoods are now hoods cause nobody's neighbors, just animals surviving with that animal behavior. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the interaction for you between hip hop uh, as a musical genre, its lyrics, its culture, and all of that, and your call as a minister of the gospel. Uh, How do those two things come together for you?
1: Well, I'm a part of the hip hop generation, and the hip hop generation is shaped and formed by hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music, uh, the visual images, uh, the fashion, even the worldview and the theology. Mm-hmm. And as someone who came of age, uh, really during uh, the, the golden era of hip hop, mm-hmm. hip hop became more than just music on the radio or videos on the television screen, but really helped to shape and give voice Uh, to the experiences that so many of us were having and continue to have today. Uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy once said that hip-hop was a CNN of the hood. Mm -hmm. And in many ways I believe that's true, that there were some things happening to us and within our communities that were not as widely known within mainstream. And so you had these urban prophets, if you will, Mm -hmm. who were speaking about racial politics, who were speaking about mass incarceration, who were speaking about the war on drugs and how it was impacting urban communities Mm -hmm. uh, in in such a way that ultimately the world had to take notice.
0: Uh, Throughout the book, Stakes is High, and in your ministry here in Dallas, we hear you talk about how much of American culture is racialized, sure. uh, about um, the challenge of being black in America mm-hmm. and uh, how, uh, how difficult it is for white Americans to see that and recognize it. Uh, when white Americans hear someone say everything is racialized, uh, they might hear that as, uh, why does it have to be? Sure. You know, wh- Why can't we get beyond racialization of every issue that comes up. Um, But you have a different take on that.
1: Well, that's because, I mean, when you consider the infrastructure of America, the American enterprise, Mm -hmm. it is wholly built upon these notions of race. That's really what gives shape to our nation and to our communities, even our city. Uh, One of the things that I've recently been getting into more and more is researching the redlining maps of major cities, particularly as we've been touring uh, with the book. Mm-hmm. In every city that I've gone to, and put on the screen uh, the redlining map of that city, uh, there are two assumptions that I can make right away, and I ask the audience to confirm it, and, and 100% of the time they confirm it. I said, where you see the red lines on this map, one of two things are happening. One, this is either still the space where poverty is most rapid within your community and has grown off from that, or it is the space where gentrification is happening Mm -hmm. most rapidly. Mm -hmm. And every single city that I've gone to, most recently Seattle and Charlotte, to to a T, they've said this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so our our neighborhoods and, and the communities and the realities that are being faced is really about intentionality in terms of who would be included and who would be excluded
0: in the American enterprise. And so it's it's something we have to talk about. Let's talk about redlining a little more. Mm -hmm. I think that's a phrase people here but sure. not everyone knows exactly what's meant by redlining. Right. You want to say a word about that.
1: Sure. Well, in the 1930s as we're going through the Great Depression, the uh, United States has this plan basically to make sure that white families do not lose their homes to foreclosure. Mm-hmm. And so they began uh, all these acts to provide resources and finances through the banking institutions, primarily not just to white families, but really to uh, white families from a kind of Western European uh, Protestant background to make sure that they remain in their homes. And so they, they literally map out on major cities, uh, color-coded areas. Uh, that would be more favorable for investment. So, for instance, if you lived in an area that was colored in with blue, you could receive 100% of a home loan, you could receive a business loan, and that would provide economic thrust. If you were in a green area, for instance, um, which usually were the less desirable whites, okay, that's gonna be Jews, that's going to be uh, those from an Eastern European background. You might get 80% of the loan. You won't get 100% funded, but you get 80%. Still decent, okay, Mm -hmm. in order to provide economic thrust. If you were in, say, Uh, a yellow area, that's gonna be the most diverse area there. That's gonna be the most impoverished whites, it's gonna be Latinos, Blacks, Asians in that area, Mm -hmm. uh, upperly mobile, if you will, Blacks, Asians, and the the like. And you can receive maybe 50% of a loan. But if you were in the red areas, the the, the neighborhoods colored in red, you could not receive any home loan, you could not receive any assistance with business. Mm -hmm. And so basically, uh, through an act of a U.S. government in collaboration with the banks, you are ensuring that generations upon generations right. are, are living in poverty because home ownership is one of the you know, initial assets for wealth building. And so even for a city like um, uh, Dallas today, we lead the nation. In single household rental properties, right. but we also lead the nation. Have been high in the nation in terms of childhood poverty, and we lead the nation in concentrated areas of poverty. Right. And so you have to see that 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 the landscape of Dallas and so many major cities was crafted out of this racialized policy right. that continues to impact us. Today. And it's
0: it's really difficult, I think, for many people today to recognize what really happened in the 1930s with this because we we know such a thing could never be accepted today in other words you wouldn't you wouldn't have people sitting down around a table today saying let's 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 look at neighborhoods and be very deliberate about color coding what's possible for who can live where and who can get i mean that would be outrageous in our minds today and yet and yet we are critical to some extent of those who live in the these neighborhoods that are legacies of these very policies, as if why why is your neighborhood uh, not um, generating wealth and positive education, and why is it filled with crime and these sorts of things? So it it, it sort of feeds on itself, doesn't it? We Absolutely. we we don't accept responsibility for the legacy of how it happened, but then we blame actually the ne- the neighbors who aren't succeeding in those places.
1: And here's a, the the really great challenge, is mm. that now, 50 years after the Kerner report, we're recognizing that many of the civil rights acts, mm. many of the initiatives of the civil rights movement have either been stunted or reversed. Yes. And uh, Associated Press, just two weeks ago, confirmed a study of over 31 million home loans and identified that redlining as a practice Mm -hmm. is continuing in America today. And so it's so important not just to see this as something that happened in the past and, and, and leave it in the 1930s. This is something that has been affirmed to be happening today and it's something we must address.
0: So when we come back from the break, I'd like for us to talk about how you as a pastor and as a Christian view these things, not simply in terms of our culture and political uh, life, but as a part of a biblical tradition and a Christian prophetic tradition. Uh, what's the implication of this for you as a human being and for all of us that's rooted in our vision of God and our understanding of what the world is intended to look like?
2: So thanks for the beginning of this. We'll be right back and continue. Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square is a broad and diverse coalition of Dallas' faith leaders dedicated to service, hope, and a shared vision for North Texas. Faith Forward Dallas creates and supports a community of respect and compassion for all, sharing in the mission of the Thanksgiving Foundation to heal divisions and enhance mutual understanding. We're back with Michael
0: Waters, Reverend Michael Waters, pastor here in Dallas and a a civil rights leader in Dallas as well. Michael, we were talking about the connection between uh, your work prophetically in the community and your work behind the pulpit as well. The connection between your calling as a Christian minister uh, and the work you do outside the church as the church. Say something about that connection for you. What drives you, what motivates your vision of the world? I think there's
1: two things that link together in my experience. Uh, One is my family. I come Mm -hmm. from a legacy of service. Mm -hmm. Um, Fifth generation ordained minister for those who were not in ordained ministry. Not only did they serve the church, Mm -hmm. uh, but they served in education. Mm -hmm. uh, From uh, professors in college to those who served in elementary school, Principles and the like, Mm -hmm. Uh, individuals who were engaged in business but had a idea of community building through business, Mm -hmm. and even those who were activists, those who marched, those who worked in the public realm, Mm -hmm. and that has been a gift. That has been uh, an inheritance, I believe, passed down uh, through our family. This idea that life is best lived in service to others. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I embrace and I hope that I'm just a part of the ongoing chapter in the narrative of our family. The next part is just our rooting within the AME Church. Uh, The African Methodist Episcopal Church is the oldest historically black denomination in the Western Hemisphere. And it was really the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement in America Mm -hmm. when Richard Allen and others left the St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia. Uh, to to really begin a new church, it was because they were being treated as second-class citizens Mm -hmm. within the church. Mm -hmm. They were not black separatists, but they were one who wanted to affirm their humanity in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And so they began uh, this movement, really, uh, that has birthed such leaders as Rosa Parks and others as part of that continuum. of of faith and justice. And so my connections denominationally uh, with that legacy and understanding that work, even to Brown Chapel, Amy Church in Selma, Alabama and the work there, uh, and my family, those things come together to really guide and push my understanding of, of our call to serve and to work in the world to bring about peace and justice.
0: You know, when I reflect upon my own sense of call, it was initially, a call that I think was rooted in my commitment to Jesus Christ uh, and the gospel of salvation. Uh, but initially it was more about wanting to be people to have a personal experience mm-hmm. of their faith and a confident assurance of what would happen when they die. Mm. Um, But over the course of years, and the more you wrestle with the actual biblical text and understand the history of of the faith, uh, both the faith that comes to us from the story of Israel and in the early church, it becomes so much clearer that God is coming to us and wants to bring uh, heaven to earth more than just deliver some people from earth to heaven. Absolutely. Uh, That our faith is about Uh, It's rooted in the story of Israel, in fact, that has uh, those who are marginalized and oppressed uh, by other human beings being heard in their cries and being delivered for freedom's sake. And then even in the New Testament where you have this recognition uh, that one group, uh, those Jews who believed in Jesus, had to sort of give way uh, of privilege, in a sense, to the Gentiles and recognize that all the barriers of distinguishing between people, um, Jews from Gentiles, males from females, uh, 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 slaves from free, all of these barriers had to fall. And it, it really changes your view, doesn't it, of, of what is our work about? Uh, that, that somehow this, this work is a, a prophetic work of, of God wanting to see that we can look at each other and in all of our differences, see the humanity uh, of each person being a child of God and flourishing. Are these things are hidden in plain sight.
1: I mean, it's, it's Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, It is the prayer taught to all of us. Yes. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, As it is in heaven. It is the names of God as Emmanuel, God who is with us. It is the Johannine Gospel text that tells us that the Christ came and tabernacled among us, right? There is this intimacy in relationship with God and with each other. It's Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane uh, that you would be one together as I am one with God in heaven. And that's the urgency of this moment. It's not this escapism. not this uh, race to heaven. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a recognition that we begin the work of eternity while rooted in time. Wonderful. And that part of our work is to bring about healing and restoration today. I think it's always important to think about Jesus' inaugural text and the, yes. in the, his inaugural message in, in the Luke and Gospel. He reaches back forth to the prophetic text of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Yes. To be connected yes. uh, in intimate forms right. uh, with, with those who are vulnerable mm-hmm. and recognizing that that is the truest testament of our, of our Christian call. And so if we are really fulfilling God's work through Christ in the world, uh, we cannot do that separate from the persons who are most vulnerable in the world.
0: I think that you maybe uh, sprang upon the public scene for many people uh, in July of uh, 2015 when the shootings took place in Dallas of police officers, and as Uh, co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas, you had already been at work uh, with uh, Rabbi Nancy Kasten and uh, Imam Omar Suleiman, and you all were able, because you had been talking to each other, to step into that public sphere and and to be leading in prayers and and words of unity and comfort to the city. Uh, But uh, that tragic event that took place in Dallas, uh, it, it, was, it was not outside of your personal experience. You didn't just come along afterward. You were actually there. Uh, tell us what brought about the march and the rally that then turned tragic that day. Absolutely.
1: Well, um, unfortunately, uh, we had been meeting for rallies and for... for marches because of the number of individuals who were very publicly killed Mm -hmm. uh, in encounters with police. And so this has been going on for a few years prior to uh, July of 2015. Mm -hmm. We were there particularly on that night, July 7th, because of the harrowing week we had experienced in witnessing the brutal deaths of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Mm -hmm. Philando Castile. Up north. Right. And those images uh, arrested us, yes. uh, 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 tormented us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was really heading out of town for a conference, and I received a call from those who were organizing and said, You know, if you would, we need you to come and, and share a word. And, you know, honestly, I, I thought that, you know, we'll, we'll be a few persons gathering. It was after Alton Sterling had died probably won't be a large group, we'll share some words, and then, you know, we'll go back to organizing at a later time. Well, before then, the march happened, the images of Philando Castile came. And what was anticipated initially to be a very small group swelled to become much larger. Mm -hmm. And the energy present there was Mm -hmm. one of great sorrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was anger, but there was just a heaviness in that moment. And... um, I was invited to speak and I shared some words, and afterwards uh, the organizer said, we need to march the people. And I understand that the people mm-hmm. were there. It was, it was a very positive uh, presence there. Mm-hmm. People were invited to get involved in movement, to join the organizations, to donate their support in other areas. The police said, we will march you, we will support the march, and there was an immediate collaboration. A lot of people don't know this from July That, that was a remarkable thing, yeah, actually, it? was an immediate collaboration right. between uh, the organizers and the police mm-hmm. to ensure everyone was safe. The police said, mm-hmm. there's too many of you to just march on mm-hmm. the sidewalk. We'll move you into the street. Mm-hmm. The police were phenomenal in pausing the march to make sure the intersections were clear. Mm-hmm. And we went to the red courthouse and there, I guess the preacher and me recognized that we had not had a moment of silence, mm-hmm. a moment of prayer uh, during our time together. And so I invited the crowd to have that moment of time to reflect and to pray. And then it kind of offered a benediction and with the instruction of police officers, dispersed individuals. And it's literally as individuals were on their way home. Uh, that the gunfire begins. Yeah. And uh, it was chaos. Right. Um, and I also want to make this statement because it's very important. Our our gathering was multiracial, mm-hmm. multi ethnic, mm-hmm. uh, multi-faith, mm-hmm. multi-generational. Yes. There were individuals with babies and strollers there. Mm-hmm. And so many times that part of the narrative is is cut out mm-hmm. that as these bullets were raining down of course on police, but we didn't know it at the time. Individuals were grabbing children and drawing them close mm-hmm. and and covering spouses and, and mm-hmm. trying to help elderly to, to make it uh, wow. to the side. And so this was really an attack on everyone, Yes, even as the police were targeted. Right. And it was not a reflection
0: of the spirit of those who had gathered that evening. So in the immediate aftermath, there were uh, tremendous gatherings, both at Thanksgiving Square and then uh, at uh, the Meyerson, uh, was it the Meyerson, yes. I, I, yeah. I think, when uh, Presidents Bush and uh, Obama yes. uh, were there. And uh, there, there was a, you know, an outpouring of attempt to bring people together and of goodwill and healing and prayer and the like. We also saw, though, I think, uh, the impact of what happens when law enforcement is targeted sure. uh, in this way. Uh, it's, it's interesting how that brings the community together, and yet, you know, when um, uh, when Michael Brown is shot down and uh, when um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castro and Eric Garner and uh, the, the um, the pastor and eight others at uh, Mother Emanuel yes. are shot. There isn't the same level of uh, of, of community being brought together, and I, I noticed that um, you know there, this is this is what got everybody's attention more or less to say, all right, we need to come together now. But it, it's interesting to me that um, uh, that in, in the immediate aftermath, I began to see signs being put up in the front yards of people in my neighborhood, back the blue. Right. You know. um, and, and, and you wanna back the blue too, uh, but I've often thought you know, if we, if we really wanna do this right, we back the blue and Black Lives Matter should be right next to it, Absolutely. because both of those things are true. I think you say something interesting in your book here. Mine is not an indictment of all police officers. There are many men and women who put their lives on the line for the public good each day some I have been blessed to call mentor or friend, many officers themselves have lost their lives. I honor their memories and ultimate sacrifice, even as I offer gratitude for those who continue to work with great integrity to keep us safe. But then you go on to say there is a radically motivated culture of fear that overassigns threat to blacks, especially but not exclusively to black males, even when no justifiable threat is present. So the challenge here is really to be able to do both things at once, isn't it? Uh, To be able to say that uh, we want to be safe in our communities but we also want to to see concrete demonstrations of respect uh, for black Americans too. Uh, And so your work is not just an advocacy for one group of people but it is for the whole community. And so the challenge is that as we mourn
1: the deaths of these officers. Mm -hmm. We're very sensitive to the deaths of individuals within our own communities, right. and I'm going to say this is because I know we often speak of the Michael Browns and the Flando Castiles, the Alton Sterlings, because those are the ones who have risen, risen to the national consciousness. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do we talk about the Santos Rodriguez, the yes. James Harrisons, Good. the Fred Bradford Juniors, yes. the Jordan Edwards, right. those who are closer into Dallas and North Texas. And so I have a relationship with both. I I have received police officers, I've been invited to pray in their gatherings, I've been a part of of collaborating on safe community programs. At the same time, I've received uh, the family members of those whose lives have been taken in in these encounters with police who are still fighting for justice and justice has not come. And the question is, how do you navigate both spaces? Right. And I I don't believe the fight is mutually exclusive because at the end of the day, it's all about the sacredness of human life. There it is. And Mm -hmm. if you really hold human life sacred, all lives matter But all lives can't matter until black lives matter as well. And we recognize that that's not happening. And so we have to show, we have to shine a light on black lives, particularly those that are treated as expendable, Mm -hmm. and recognize that until we lift up the value, the sacredness, the divinity, even within black life as we do in other lives, then we truly cannot celebrate the whole of life in America. We've got to do it, and it's hard work. Uh, But but the the blessing, if you will, of the anniversary of July 7th was that because of our work as Faith Forward and and what we've attempted to do, we were able to center the pain of both communities side by side. We had police officers standing beside the family of Jordan Edwards. Mm -hmm. And we lifted up that pain together and challenged our community to address it both. The, the officers, which is, which is amazing, a lot of people don't know this, uh, but the officers invited myself and Imam Omar to speak at the police memorial beautiful, on the anniversary of July 7th. And there, we called the names, not only of the five officers fallen, but those who have been failed to police brutality, because we've got to hold them together, even in tension together, in order to
0: work for a better day. Well, Michael, thank you for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure uh, to have this conversation, and I hope uh, many people uh, are helped and uh, encouraged by it. Thank you for your work, for peace and justice in our community. Thank you. God bless you. Bless you.
2: Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location, production, facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith common. Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square is a broad and diverse coalition of Dallas' faith leaders dedicated to service, hope, and a shared vision for North Texas. Faith Forward Dallas creates and supports a community of respect and compassion for all, sharing in the mission of the Thanksgiving Foundation to heal divisions and enhance mutual understanding.